If you have your Bibles tonight, you can open them to James chapter 1. We're going to begin a study, a, a series in the book of James. I don't know if it'll take us a year or, um, or a couple months or I don't know. I'm not going to put um, a time frame on it, but we are going to go through this book and I can promise you that when we get through it, you will know it. Um, um, it's a very practical uh, book that we can apply to our daily lives and, and I promise you it will change your life. If you, if you come and you are intent on receiving it and, and receiving it as truth, it will change your life. And so tonight, I just want to look at the first verse. I know that it sounds silly, and most often the temptation is to read and cruise right through uh, that introduction, but, but it, it, it really is just chock full of truth. And, and so I want to look at that verse, but let me just begin by, by, by just... Um, telling you that I, I don't watch much TV. Uh, I don't have time for much TV. Uh, my life is busy. But when I do watch, I love to watch HGTV. Is anybody with me? And one of my very favorite shows is The Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines. And it's one of my favorite shows. And, and I love it because I really live vicariously through Joanna. Uh, I, I wish I had her, half of her decorating ability and, and her eye to see. I'm always amazed that each episode, uh, as the show progresses, uh, it, she takes an old, run-down, dilapidated, beat-up house, and step-by-step, step, she walks the viewer through the process of making it into a thing of beauty. Joanna has an eye to see what most people can't even see, and, and she takes something that would have been, or that I personally would have said was beyond hope and past repair, and she transforms it into a masterpiece. I believe that that was James' goal when he wrote this letter to Christians who were scattered throughout the world. Uh, many of our Christian lives, like Joanna's houses, are run down and in shabby condition. Some of us may even appear to be beyond hope or too severely damaged, but James knew that God had an eye for the masterpiece in us. He knew that we were created to be something that most of us are really not being. And he walks us practically step by step to prove that we truly can be a fixer-upper. Do you believe that? Or are you satisfied being in the place you are right now? Well, when I was a little girl, um, I, I watched uh, this show, and I'm going to date myself. I, I, you, many of you won't even remember this show, uh, but, but there was a show on television called Dragnet. Does anybody remember it? Oh my goodness, that's surprising to me. But, but we would watch it on our, uh, back in the day, we had Kendall, we had console TVs that were black and white with little knobs. We didn't have remote controls. And, uh, and when I was growing up, my siblings and I used to love to watch reruns of Dragnet. And um, it was a show about the Los Angeles Police Department that centered around a detective called Joe Friday. Do you remember that? And Joe Friday was a, a shrewd detective, and he was really good at what he did. And, but he was a no-nonsense cop who unapologetically said it like it was. I like that. And I used to love to watch the show, and, and he became known for a statement that he said on almost every episode. Does anybody remember what that was? Oh, I can't even believe it. What was it? Just the facts, ma'am. I can't even believe you knew that. Just the facts. And he said it almost every episode. 
And I recently read a commentary written by Pastor Stephen Cole, and it's, he's, I really like his insight, and I read his stuff often. And, but he too was a fan of this show, and he related it to the book of James. He said, Detective Joe Friday never wanted to hear anything irre- irrelevant to solving the case. As I said, he only wanted the facts. He didn't want his time wasted with other details, and he especially didn't like when people digressed or got off on a tangent. If that happened, he would rudely interrupt with his famous line, just the facts, ma'am. And Pastor Cole says that, uh, that James is the Joe Friday of the New Testament. He cuts to the bottom line without messing around. He doesn't bore us with unrelated facts, and he never, ever deviates from the truth that matters. He's not interested in hearing your profession of faith. He wants to cut to the chase. He wants to see your practice and demonstration of the faith that you proclaim. The expositor's Bible commentary and several other commentators refer to James as the least theological book in the New Testament. That's next to Philemon. But don't get me wrong. It's not that James isn't interested in sound doctrine. It's not that he's not interested in theology. He just understands that you can have all the theological knowledge that you want. You can have all the sound doctrine that you want. But if you don't apply it to your life, if I don't apply it to my life, it means nothing. And I'm just going to tell you that I think that that's where the church is at today. We can preach a good word. We can quote some scripture. We can pray up a storm. We never miss Bible study or church. But I just wonder how much the the word that we're hearing is really changing us. James knows that that doctrine without application is worthless. I I was thinking today uh, about Paul telling Timothy, I think it's in 1 Timothy 4. He says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. He's basically telling Timothy that don't put a stumbling block in somebody's faith. My mama used to pound into me, Rhea, your walk must match your talk. It doesn't matter how much you proclaim something. If you're not living it, people are not going to buy it. If I stood up here on one foot and I said to you, I'm standing on two feet, what are you going to believe? You're going to believe what you see. I can tell you I'm standing on two feet all that I want, but unless you see it lived out in my life, you're not going to believe it. You are going to believe what you can see. And I'm just going to tell you, church, people are watching us as believers, and they want to see more than they want to hear. My mama used to say to me, you are the only Bible that some people are ever going to read, Rhea. So be very careful how you're living how are you living? James knew that it wasn't just what we said, it was how we were living that, we're gonna, that, that would convince people that our God was really who he says he is. So many of us as Christians talk the talk, but we never seem to walk the walk. And James challenges his readers with the truth that sound doctrine should affect how we live. Talk is cheap. James wants to see results. David Roper says, and this is so fascinating to me, David Roper says that there are 54 imperatives, he counted them, 54 imperatives or commands in the 108 verses of this book. That's fascinating to me. James has five short chapters, 108 verses, and he devotes 54 of those verses to commands, to imperatives, not suggestions, 
imperatives. Do this, don't do that. And, and you know what that says to me? That tells me that James believes that the word of God is something to be obeyed. Do you believe that? Or do you believe it's just something you hear about on Sunday morning? Do you believe it's just something that you need to memorize so you can quote and look super spiritual? Or do you believe that the word of God is truly something to be obeyed? James isn't interested in talk. You're going to find that out. He wants to see some action. And as we begin to go through this series, we're going to find out that that's what it's about. James will be teaching us what it means for our walk to match our talk. Like Joe Friday, trust me, he doesn't mess around. He's a master at presenting day-to-day -day struggles and then giving simple life-altering solutions to lead his readers to victory and spiritual maturity. It's a straightforward call to action for Christians. We're not going to just learn more of God's word in this series. We're, we're going to explore how that word and the truth of it should be affecting and changing the way we behave and walk as Christians. It's a life-transforming book chalked with truth and guidance for everyday Christian living. And I'm excited about studying it with you. But I promise you that as you come here each week, my goal as, as a teacher is going to be to give you a nugget of truth to take with you, to apply to your life that week so that you can watch God transform it and really change us into the masterpiece, the fixer-upper that he knows we are. So open your Bibles to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Also, I, I'm hoping to do something with the word. We're going to read the same passages every week for a while. I'd like to get it drummed in you uh, so that maybe you can start committing this passage. It's a, it's a great book to memorize. When Kendall was a little girl, Kendi, how old do you think you were when we were doing that? Yeah, she's probably, I don't know, eight or 10 years old. And, and we started memorizing the book of James. And, and it was just because I started memorizing it and I'd be driving down the road and I would hand her my Bible and I'd have her quiz me. I would, I would say it, she'd correct me if I said a word wrong. And before I knew it, she had the, the first chapter memorized as well. So to this day, we can still go back and forth with James chapter, with the first chapter in James. And, and, and it's, it's chalked full of truth. It's, it's really good scripture to memorize. And so I'm hoping that as we go through the book of James, we'll start to commit uh, that book to, to memory as well. So James chapter 1. Uh, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now that's a verse that you just want to skip right over and get to the meat of the scripture. You, normally, if we were reading that, we might not even stop and look at that. But, but tonight, I want to devote this teaching just to that one little verse. And it's important, before we get into an in-depth study of a book or in the Bible, we need to be familiar with the background of that book. Why that book was written, who wrote it, who were they writing it to? And, and we can get that information just from the first two verses of this book. It's interesting that in Bible times when they were writing a letter, and this is a letter, when they were writing a letter, that they didn't sign it at the end of the letter. If you and I get a letter in the mail, I will often either look at the return address or I will quickly open it up and flip it over and look at who's writing it to me. And, but in Bible times, they started their letter out with who was writing it and who it was written to. And so we can see here, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nation. 
So it's James that's writing this book. But which James is it? There, it was a, there were a ton of James in Jesus' time and, and a ton of James that we are familiar with that, that were in Jesus' circles. Uh, for example, the, the biggest one that we might be tempted to believe wrote this book was James, the, one of the 12 disciples. You know, James and his brother John, the sons of thunder. <laughs> Can you imagine having that name, the sons of thunder? I mean, that was, that was what they were identified as. And, but commentators agree that the Apostle James was not the writer of this book. We know that he was martyred in 44 AD. Uh, we, we know that from Acts chapter 12. And so James was written after that time. And so we know that it could not have been the Apostle James because he would have already been martyred uh, by the time that this book was written. Most commentators agree that the writer was probably James, the half-brother of Jesus. And, and we know that. I, I want to just take you, if you have your Bibles, make sure you bring them the next couple months because we're going to really use them. And so tonight I want to just take you through some scripture. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13. And I just want to read a couple little verses to you. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't, this, isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? And so we see there that James was a brother of Jesus. There and in, Ma in Mark chapter 6, it's a very similar uh, verse. Uh, James' name is listed first. And so uh, that would have been, that's how they, they listed really an age order. And so we know that James was probably the oldest brother of Jesus. And, and, and we know he was his half-brother because you know the story. Mary conceived uh, Jesus through the Holy Spirit when she and Joseph, were betrothed to be married, when they were engaged to be married. In those days, an engagement or a betrothal was very similar to marriage. It could only be ended through divorce. And, and you know the story. Mary became pregnant with the Holy Spirit. She goes to Joseph. He has a mind to, to divorce her. An angel comes to him, says, don't divorce her. It really is what she says it is. Uh, they did not consummate their marriage until after Jesus was born. And then James probably was the first child that they had uh, between the two of them. And so uh, we know that Jesus probably came from a large family. We see right there a list of his brothers and sisters is plural. And so we know that there were probably, uh, we, you see the four brothers listed, uh, plural sisters is at least two. And so Jesus came from a pretty large family. Flip over to Galatians chapter 1. Verses 18 and 19, uh, Galatians, General Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, if you're having trouble finding it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 18. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. So there we know again that James is the Lord's brother, and I believe it's James, the author of this book. Now, it's important because we know from Scripture, this is really important, that James was not always a believer. 
It's important that you understand that. You say, Maria, why are you taking all this time before we get to the meat of this, uh, of this message? Uh, you know that I'm a preacher. I'm going to be preaching tonight. I'm going to teach. And it's hard for me. It's hard to, for me to remain calm and just give you facts. And, and it seems a bit boring to me as a preacher because I want to preach it. I want to drive it home. And so teaching is always difficult for me because I want to quickly get to the point I want to drive. And, uh, but we're not going to do that tonight. I'm going to give you some background and so flip over to John chapter 7, uh, the gospel of John chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. Now, James was not always a believer. In fact, I don't believe that he even believed in Jesus at the time of his death. And I believe that because of this, James or John chapter 7, verses 3 through 4. This is, uh, when the, this is at the Jewish Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus' brother, verse 3, Jesus' brother said to him, you ought to leave here and go to Ju Judea because, you're, because your disciples may see your mir the miracles that you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. Can you just imagine what that must have been like? You are God incarnate and your family doesn't even buy it. Now, I don't know about you. It always tickles me when my family, my brothers and my sisters come to an event I'm doing or, or, or you know, want to support my ministry in any way, shape or form. It blesses me when my children want to come and hear me preach because there's nobody that knows you better than your family. They know who you are behind closed doors. They've seen you at your worst. And so I, I just have to chuckle when I see that his family did not even believe in him. And, you know, there's a scripture that says that they were going to seize Jesus because they thought he was out of his mind. That's his family. Grew up with this guy, and now he's saying he is the son of God. Yeah, right. I know. I changed his diapers. I saw him growing up. Can you just imagine what they must have been thinking? It's not too surprising. Imagine if you had a brother, and he started saying, I'm the son of God, and making all these claims. Can you really blame James? Can you really blame them for showing up and saying, I think he's out of his mind. We need to take him away. And, and so while it hurts me to see that, we, it's not so difficult to understand why they did it. But flip over to Mark chapter 6, verse 4. Mark chapter 6, verse 4. If you're here for the first time tonight, we don't always do all of this searching through the Word. I normally will just read it to you, but there's something about looking it up on your own and, and looking at that verse. And, uh, but Mark chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. Obviously, the, from this passage, it makes it clear that his relatives did not believe in him or receive him. So I want to know what convinced James that Jesus was really God in flesh. I, I want to know that. If it's so clear to me that James did not believe in him, I want to know what the turning point was. And, and I, I think we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 6 through 8. Listen to this. 
After that, this is after Jesus was, he died. Now remember, his family saw him be crucified. Do you know how horrible that death was? And to watch somebody you loved be crucified, I can't even imagine the pain of seeing that. And so they watched him be crucified and buried. He was dead for how many days? Three days. And the Bible says he rose again. And so this is after his resurrection, verse 6. After that, well, let's back up just a little bit, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. I always, I always like that. Dave always tells me that he appeared to 500 at the same time so that people couldn't say that others were hallucinating if they saw him alone. And so he appeared before a huge group of people so that they couldn't deny that he really did appear. And so he appeared to over 500 people at the same time. Verse 7, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me, to Paul, as to one abnormally born. Now there we see that Jesus appeared to James. He appeared to three people when they were alone, and it was Peter, Paul, and James. And, and I'm going to tell you, if you have to ask yourself, what made James end up believing in Jesus, that'll do it, will it not? If you watch your brother be crucified, if you know that he was buried, you saw him get buried, you know he was dead as dead can be, and that all of a sudden he appears three days later in front of you, that will definitely change your mind that he's really who he says he is, would it not? And I think that that's what happened to James, because we see from that point after that, uh, that James really began to uh, declare he was absolutely sold out, committed to, to Jesus and to spreading the gospel. And we see that Acts chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. I won't read that to you. Well, actually, let's read it. Acts chapter 1, there's Acts and then there's Romans right after John, verses 13 and 14. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. Now those are James, the, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the, the son of James. Those are the 12 disciples. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brothers. So now all the brothers are in the upper room, and they're waiting for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So James not only put his faith in Jesus, it looks like the rest of his brothers and probably the rest of his family did too. Historians tell us that James became the head of the church at Jerusalem. And he was widely known as James the Just or James the Righteous because he had incredible commitment to holiness. He also was known as Old Camel Knees. Do you remember that one? That's one of my favorite. And, and people say that, that he was called Old Camel Knees because he ended up spending so much time in prayer that his knees became wrinkled from it. And so can you imagine living that kind of life? He's gone from not believing in Jesus at all to being sold out and committed to Jesus. And so that's just fascinating to me. So I told you that James, the book of James, is an epistle. It's not a gospel. 
It's an epistle. And the word epistle means letter. And as I was thinking about that and thinking about uh, talking to you about it being a letter, the Lord brought a scripture to mind that I just want to, I want to park on for a moment tonight and talk to you about. And that's in James, or I'm sorry, it's in 2 Corinthians 3 verses 1 and 2. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everybody. You should know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not in ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. That word letters there is the same word for epistle. And, and Paul is saying, uh, you, you, you are evidence of our ministry. You, we don't need letters of recommendation. In Bible times at this time, the, there were a lot of false teachers and they were presenting letters of recommendation from people that made them look better than they were. They were trying to get business. They were trying to, to look all that in a bag of potato chips. And so they would, they would present these letters of recommendation that, that was really uh, validating their ministry. And Paul was saying, we don't need to do that because our recommendation, our letters, our epistles are written on you. It's your heart. You are evidence of our ministry being effective. You are evidence of the work of God in our ministry. And so I was thinking about that today and thinking about, you know, how the church today, we are judge, we judge a pastor's success by the size of his church or how many, how beautiful the church building is. What if we judged instead by the radically transformed lives that come from his or her ministry? Not by the number of people attending, but by the fruit, the lasting fruit that come from people's lives that attend their ministry. You've heard me say it a million times. I'm not interested in building a large church. I'm not interested in building a huge congregation of people. I am interested in building disciples, changed lives, people who shine, people who shine for Jesus, people who look different than the unbeliever down the street. I'm far more interested in fruit than I'm interested in number of people. We could pack this place out if I watered down the gospel and tickled ears. Do you understand that? But I'm not about to do that because we are building an army for God. We are, we are building disciples. And it's my prayer that, that we become letters of recommendation that people can look at our life and say, that's what God can do. Look at how God can, can take a, a, a run-down, ragged old life like Rhea's and make her a fixer-upper. Don't you want that in your life? And that's what we are called to be, living epistles. We're called to represent and represent well. We need to give evidence of the power of the gospel just from our life. It's about a transformed life. We need to live him out loud. And James is going to show us how to do that. James is going to show us that if we apply the word of God to our life, that we really, it's not about preaching doctrine. It's not about talking about doctrine. It's about living it and applying it to your life. As I said earlier, I'm struck that there are 54 imperatives or commands in this book. And, and commentators say that's just another example of the authority that James ended up carrying. People really respected him. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem. I think it was Paul that described him as a pillar of the church. 
He was talking about him and Peter and said he was a pillar of the church. But the one that's the thing that strikes me the most and that I want to spend the rest of our time on is that second part of the verse. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, remember, this is Jesus's half-brother. And, you know, I see this a lot. We like to be able to say, I knew so-and-so. It kind of gives us an in. It makes us look like we're all that in a bag of potato chips. If we can say we know somebody famous or, are you with me? This is Jesus's brother. And instead of saying, I am the brother of Jesus. I mean, that would give him some authority, wouldn't it? People would want to listen. Oh, he's Jesus's brother. But he doesn't. Now, this is the same James, that are, that's going to tell us in a couple of weeks, humble yourself before the Lord. And this was obviously a humble man because he doesn't say, I'm Virgin Mary's other son. I'm Jesus's brother. He doesn't start out his epistle that way. And I love that. He instead says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That tells me a lot about him. But what's fascinating to me is the word that's used there for servant. It's not just servant, let me wash your feet kind of servant. The word is doulos in the original language. And it means not just servant, it means a slave. A slave. Uh, It it means someone, and I have some definitions that I I want you uh, to, to listen to tonight. And really, if you're taking notes, make sure you write it down. It's not just a servant. It was a slave. It was somebody who was the property of a master. He was owned by him. One of the, the Greek dictionaries I use said, it describes someone who is bound to another or in the state. I like this. Someone who's in the state of being completely controlled by another. Are you completely controlled by Jesus? Are you completely controlled by his word? The Blue Letter Bible says that doulos is a metaphor for one who gives himself up completely to another's, another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. I wonder how many here tonight really want to be used to extend and advance the gospel. I want that. I want that more than anything in this world. I I was praying on the way here. Lord, I just want to, I want to be a vessel that you can use. I want to be, I want to, everything I do, I want to, to expend your kingdom. I want to use to, I just want to be that kind of person for you, Lord. James is saying, I'm a doulos. My whole life revolves around doing the, the Father's will. My whole life revolves around doing service that Christ can use to extend and advance his cause among men. It means someone who's devoted to another, and get this, to the disregard of their own interests. Someone who's devoted to another, to the disregard of their own interests. Oh, I'm the most selfish person in the whole wide world. That's my husband. And, and, and I love that he says, I am so devoted to you, Jesus, that, that I won't even, I'm to the disregard of my, no, my own interests. Do we do that? Are we so devoted to the Lord, even to the disregard of our own interests? Or is it all about us? It means one who totally and completely gives himself up for the will and service of another. It's voluntary servanthood. And we as Christians are to commit ourselves to Christ as our master, just as slaves in the natural world have committed themselves to their master. And they walk in total and complete obedience to them. 
In Bible times, if a man got himself into debt, he became the property of his creditor. And, and then he would become his slave. And, but the, slave, the slavery had a time of termination. After seven years, these slaves could be liberated. And they could go forth no longer as a slave, but they were a free man. But they would go back to their life, you know, their, their life of poverty usually. And, and, and most of them would realize if they had a really good master, they would realize that, hey, I'm better off staying here. I know that it's seven years and I can go free, but my life without this master, my life before this master was nothing compared to what I'm living now. Even as a slave, I have this great life. My needs are be being provided for. I have everything I need. I have this tender, wonderful master who, who it's a privilege to serve. And so I'm going to choose, even though I could go free, I'm going to choose to be a bondservant is the word. And I'm going to be bound to him by a choice. It's voluntary. I'm making the decision to stay and be his slave because I recognize that he's a good master. And I recognize that my life is better with him than it was without him. And so after seven years, they make the choice to stay as a bondservant. That's the word that James uses here. Do you know that you could be free? Do you know that you, you and I had a debt we could not pay and he paid a debt he did not owe so that we, we could be free. He set us free. But we make a decision to say, Lord, you know what? My life before you, trust me, let me just tell you, my life before Jesus was pathetic was lived in poverty, was lived, and I don't mean financial poverty. I mean poverty of spirit. I mean the pit. And when I came to Jesus and the transformation that he made in my life and the change that he made in my life and the way I know he loves me, can I tell you, you are loved by God. You are loved by him. There is nothing you could ever do to separate you from the love of God. He loves you. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's been done to you. I don't care how bad you feel about yourself. Can I just tell you, you are loved by the most high God. You are loved by him. He knows everything about you and he loves you anyway. And the Bible says that he wants to be your provider. He wants to be your, your, your advocate. He wants to be your defender. He wants to be your friend that sits closer than a brother. He wants to be your healer. He wants to be everything you have need of. Now that's a good master, is it not? So why church? Why would we ever want to go be a slave to sin? Why would we ever want to be a slave to this world if we have a choice to voluntarily submit to his lordship. And that's what James is saying. I am a bondservant of the Lord Most High, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think sometimes we want to come to Christ and we want our debt canceled. We want to know that, that our master took care of our debt, but we don't want to serve him. We don't we, we, we don't want it to cost us anything. We don't want to have to make any sacrifices. Luke chapter 17 says that our Christian life should look like this. It says, so you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We have only done what our master told us to do. Not only our savior, he's our Lord. Being a doulos is a picture of being totally dependent on God, being wholly committed to him and making this choice not out of sacrifice, that this is what I need to do, 
but rather voluntarily and joy joyously because you recognize there's no better way to live. We give up our rights and we do what our master commands us to do. I love that James would call himself a doulos of his brother. So in summary, let me just go over that. A doulos was owned by and totally possessed by his master. He existed for his master and no other reason. He had no personal rights. He gave those up. He was at his master's disposal 24-7. He had no will of his own, but was completely subservient to the master. Think about that. You're like, I don't want anything to do with that. This week I was visiting with my mother-in-law. I was over doing some work with her and she walked me to the door and we were talking about things and, and at one point she reached up and she touched me on my cheek and, and she had tears in her eyes and, and she looked at me and she said, Rhea, there is nothing else that matters in this world except what we do for Jesus. There's nothing else that matters in this world. There's nothing that's more important. There's nothing more valuable than we could be doing than what we're doing for Jesus. And yet we live our life thinking it's more valuable for me to go shopping today. It's more valuable for me to get my education because it's all about me. It's more valuable for me to clean my house right now. It's more valuable for me to whatever. Can I tell you there's nothing more valuable it's not worth more valuable to watch the Packer game than it is to be in church. I'm just telling you, there's nothing more valuable than we could do than, than, than what we do for Jesus. Do you really believe that? I want to look at one more verse before we close about a do loss, and it's in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, <coughs> verses 22 through 26. I'm actually going to read it to you in the Amplified, so you can turn there, but listen to it in the Amplified. Shun youthful lusts and flee from them and aim at and pursue righteousness. All that is virtuous and good, right living, conformity to the will of God in thought, word, and deed. And aim at and pursue faith, love, and peace, harmony, and concord with others. In fellowship with all Christians who call upon the Lord out of a pure heart. But refuse, shut your mind against, have nothing to do with, trifling, ill-informed, unedifying, stupid controversies over ignorant questionings, for you know that they foster, and they foster strife and breed quarrels. Here's what I want you to see. And the servant of the Lord, the doulos, must not be quarrelsome, fighting and contending. Instead, he must be kindly to everyone and mild temper, preserving the bond of peace. He must be a skilled and suitable teacher, patient and forbearing and willing, get this, willing to suffer wrong. He must correct his opponents with courtesy and gentleness in the hope that God may grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, that they will perceive and recognize and become accurately acquainted with and acknowledge it. And that they may come to their senses and escape out of the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him henceforth to do his will. I love that scripture. He's saying a do loss of, of the Lord. It looks like this. The scripture is not for everybody. The scripture is strictly for a person who's willing to be known as a servant of God, a do loss of God. And if you and I consider ourselves a do loss, we're going to apply the scripture to our life. He says, flee youthful lusts. 
That's interesting. That word is an imperative. This is where I get to preach. It's a command, and it's a present imperative. It means that it should be our habitual practice. It should be the way we're living. It's a continual day in and day out, moment by moment, intentional mindset. You and I need to be alert to youthful lusts. Now, that lust doesn't just mean uh, sexual lust. It means passions and desires that overwhelm us and overtake us. And we're told to flee from them as a do loss. Get rid of it. Run as fast away from that thing as you possibly can. Shut it out of your mind and move on. Don't focus on it. Don't give in to it. Flee from it. Don't flirt with them. Don't entertain them. Don't wait a second in their presence. Flee. And it says pursue. And again, that's another present imperative. It's a, it's a command that, that is a habitual command to take place every day in your life. It says pursue righteousness, right living, God's way. It says refuse. Don't have anything to do with. Shut your mouth against. Refuse to pay attention to. <laughs> it's interesting. That that word refuse, it means excusing himself for not accepting a wedding invitation. I like that. But this one changed my life. Let's let's look at that that 2 Timothy. Does somebody have it open in the NIV? 2 Timothy 2.22. Let me get it open then. I promise this is it. I'm finishing. But I just want to point out one last thing. 2.22. Um, flee, don't have anything to do with, yes, yes, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, that's the one I wanted you to look at, that word don't have anything to do is refuse, but here's what was fascinating to me when I was studying it, in the secular Greek, that word don't have anything to do with or refuse was, uh, the, a word for a wrestler, uh, was declared to be the victor when his opponents refused to engage him upon seeing his unclothed physique. It's a strong word, which means to refuse to pay attention to, especially when the person being addressed may be reluctant to cease and desist. Now, think about it. It's a word that's used when I'm going to enter a wrestling match with somebody and I take one look at the guy who's wrestling and he's this big, monstrous, muscular guy and he doesn't have a shirt on and I'm like, ain't no way I'm touching that. I'm not even, I'm equipped before I even start because there's no way I'm winning that match. Are you with me? Okay, come on. Let's flesh this out. When I want to have a temper tantrum because we're going to refuse quarrels we're going to refuse to, to fight with one another. We're going to refuse to tit for tat and, and to, to get involved with that kind of garbage. You see, so many of us will fight and we'll bicker and we'll gossip and we'll malice and slander. And, and he's saying, if you're a servant of the Lord, a doulos, you're going to refuse that thing. You're going to understand it's like a wrestler that you're entering a wrestling match in and you are defeated before you even start. Don't even go there. That's not a battle you're going to win. Is that good stuff or what? That was worth the whole night, was it not? That is so good. That is so good. I'm telling you. And we have got to make up our mind, church, that we want to look different than the unbeliever down the street. You are the only Bible that some people get to read. Shine for Jesus. Look different. 
We talked this weekend. I'm telling you, if you missed the retreat, you missed a good, you, you missed it. You need to get the CDs because I'm telling you, it's life-changing. We talked about our mind and renewing our mind and not letting our mind just go crazy. We've, we've got to, so many of us are led by our emotions, by our fear, by our worry, our anxieties. We're led by that. It either makes or breaks our day. And, you know, so many of us are led by the scale. If I get on the scale and I'm up three pounds, my whole day is ruined and I'm going to be grouchy to everybody I talk to. We are led by our emotions, by our feelings. This person looked at me wrong. My whole day is going to be spent thinking, what did I do? They don't like me. I can't even believe they don't like me. And we're led by that garbage. And yet we have the same power that raised Christ from the dead living within us. And we have a choice what we're going to yield to. Are we going to yield to the soul, the flesh, or are we going to yield to the powerful spirit within us? We have a choice. We don't have to give in. We can look at that thing and say, it's a wrestler with big old honking muscles, and that is not a battle I'm going to win. I'm not even going to get involved with it. I'm going to shine for Jesus instead. I can walk away from that thing. That's what a doulas does. Lord, not my will. My will wants to just rip them a new head right now. But your will says, I need to be gentle and kind and loving and forgiving. Are you with me? And so James is going to start next week already challenging us with what this looks like. Every week, I promise you, you will leave here with something. And you say, well, Rhea, he wasn't writing this to me. Really? Really? Because... When I was reading it, it says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. And the commentators I read said, you know what? This is about the Christians across the, across the nations. This is about if you're a believer, this book is for you. He's writing it for us. And so that includes all of us, guys. And so week after week after week, we are going to be challenged with this word. I just want to read you one last thing before we close. I read a devotional in my utmost for his highest, and it was on the scripture that was, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the writer said, these words mean the breaking and the collapse of my independence brought about by my own hands and the surrendering of my life to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus. No one can do this for me. I must do it for myself. God may bring me up to this point 365 times a year, but he cannot push me through it. It means breaking the hard outer layer of my individual independence from God and the, and the liberating of myself and my nature into oneness with him. Not following my own ideas, but choosing absolute loyalty to Jesus. Once I'm at that point... There is no possibility of misunderstanding. Very few of us know anything about loyalty to Christ or understand what he meant when he said, for my sake. That's what makes a strong saint. Has that breaking of my independence come? All the rest is religious fraud. The one point to decide is, will I give up? Will I surrender to Jesus Christ, placing no conditions whatsoever as to how my brokenness will come. I must be broken from my own understanding of myself. When I reach that point, immediately the reality of supernatural identification with Jesus takes place, and the witness of the Spirit is unmistakable. 
I have been crucified with Christ. The passion of Christianity comes from deliberately signing away my own rights and becoming a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Until I do that, I will not begin being a saint. We are declared saints. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, is what we talked about this week, this weekend. Nothing can change that. We are sealed. That's our legal status before God in our spirit. But we have a soul that just likes to run crazy, our mind, our will, our emotions. And the challenge for us as believers is to rein that in. The Bible talks about, and the belt of truth buckled around his waist. Do you know why it says that? Because the belt of truth, the word of God, the truth of God's word, the truth of, of his commands. Uh, we, what what a, a soldier would do is he had a long flowing garment and he would strap a belt and then he would tuck his, his long flowing robe into the belt because it would trip him up if he tried to run. And what they're saying is that, you, that our minds can trip us up in the battle. And we have got to rein them in. We've got to, to belt them in. We've got to tighten it up so that they can't just run freely. I'm, I'm reading a book. It's a really, really old, old, old book, like back in the 60s. And, and, and they talk about mind, mind fasting and spirit feasting. Mind fasting, spirit feasting. It's it's fascinating to me. I told Dave, it's all I can think about. I'm just constantly thinking, mind fasting. We just finished a fast. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We just finished a fast and we learned what it means to say no to food, that I can say no to food. I don't have to just let it, I let it, I'm hungry, but I can say no to it. And mind feasting is, I want to do this. I'm thinking this thought, but I can choose not to act on it. I can, I can fast in my mind Feast and feed my spirit truth. Are you with me? That's just good stuff, isn't it? We've got to learn to train our minds. We can't just let our untrained mind run. And that's part of what we're going to learn in the book of James in the next couple of weeks. I'm so glad that you're here. Let me just pray for you. Kelsey will sing us a song on our way out the door. If you need prayer, um, our team will be up here to pray with you. We would love to pray uh, for you and with you. Um, but we are really glad um, that you came. Dave, could you just stay tonight for prayer as well? Um, and so, Father, we just thank you and we praise you, Lord, for, for your word. We thank you that it is powerful. It's active. And it never returns void. And so, Father, uh, I'm excited to begin this study in James. I pray, Father, that you would just transform us with your powerful word, that you would grant us supernatural revelation and understanding that's far beyond our ability. And, Lord, that you would just, you would just begin to uh, conform us to your image like we've never been conformed before. Lord, I thank you for each person here. I pray that you put an excitement for your word inside of each of them. Lord, I'm asking for a hunger. Lord, would you instill a hunger in each person in this room, a thirst after righteousness, Lord God, that we would have such a craving for more of you and more of the things of God, Lord, that nothing else would satisfy. Now bless each one, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.